Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Greedy. In today's episode, we're going to be doing the second part of share-based payments, so IFRS 2. Um, and I'm joined again by the lovely Katie Woods. Welcome to the studio, Katie. Thank you, Ruth. Lovely to be back. And I'll warn listeners in advance, Katie and I have had the giggles trying to record this, so uh, hopefully you'll manage to get through it. But if not, there might be some laughter in there. IFRS 2 is fun. That's all I can say. <laughs> it's really, really fun. So in the first episode, we talked about... Are you in the scope? And then do you have equity or cash settled? Today, we're going to be talking about vesting conditions, which obviously are hilarious, and uh, measurement as well. So let's start at the top. What is a vesting condition, Katie? Okay, so I could give you the definition from the standard, but perhaps it's easier to basically say that a vesting condition is when the recipient of the award, so be that an equity instrument, a share, actually has an unconditional right to use that award. So they can walk off, they can use it, they can sell it, they can do what they like. So it has only vested with someone when they can use it themselves. And it's worth mentioning that in a lot of legal arrangements, there might be a reference to vesting, but that may not be vesting in the light of IFRS 2. Okay, so even if it says vesting in the legal agreement, yeah. you have to look at what the standard tells us. Absolutely. Okay, so what, what types of vesting conditions are there? Oh, there's a, there's a lot of vesting conditions. So let's start with the more simple ones, which would be the, the service condition and the performance condition, okay? Now, they are pure vesting conditions, and a service condition means, as it basically implies, that the recipient has to provide service in order to get the award. So if they were to leave before the vesting condition had completed, then they wouldn't get it. They'd just leave and uh, no longer provide service, wouldn't get the award. However, if the service condition has completed and it's vested with them, then they could leave and still keep the award. So one of your typical questions to teams, if you were looking at this, would be what happens when the person leaves? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And again, we're talking about people here, but this is them performing the employment services and they get something in return. Correct, yeah. Okay, so the other one you mentioned there then was performance conditions. So performance conditions are really broken down into into two elements. There's the market condition, market performance condition, and a non-market performance condition. Performance really means something other than service. So the more simple one is a non-market condition. So that means it's not linked to the share price. For example, has the entity reached a particular earnings per share, EPS criteria? And once the company entity has done that and the award becomes unconditionally vested or entitled to the recipient, then you're done. So it's it's a condition that says, has the entity done something or, or has something happened for the recipient to get the, the award? Have they performed? Performed, exactly. Um, a market condition, I kind of alluded to this in my explanation of a non-market condition, but a market condition is where performance is linked to the share price. So the most simple example is total shareholder return or a direct share price. And in that situation, again, it will depend on whether something vests with the employee, but has an impact on how it's measured. So it's probably worth how we deal with service conditions and performance conditions, looking at those next. 
Yeah, because what I was going to say, if we've got three different definitions standard, they must all mean something or have an impact on the accounting. Exactly. What's the difference? Okay, so with a service condition and a non-market performance condition, you work out the fair value, and we'll come on to what that is when we, we talk about measurement, and you would spread that charge over those vesting conditions. So you'd work out a fair value in line with RFRS 2, and then you said, okay, I'm going to spread this based on the the likely outcomes. So for service, how many people are going to receive the award? And for poor performance, how likely is it that you've reached? Now, how likely EPS is reached is more difficult because it's basically binary. It's either going to get it or not. So you look at whether the EPS is going to be achieved and then whether the employee will get it or not. And that can have an impact of having a charge and then no charge, i.e. reverse it out. So you could have quite a lumpy P&L. You could, yeah, definitely. So this is definitely about the attribution of the share-based payment charge, which you work out right at the beginning, at the grant date. Okay. So with the service condition you're going to be spreading it over the vesting period and effectively almost re-estimating when that condition changes or the probability Mm. of the condition? So, yeah, the probability of the number of people will continue with service. So when we are working out a share-based payment charge, again, we'll come on to it, but we would say this is the fair value at the grant date and that we would fix. We would then say, okay, out of 100 people who've been provided with the right to the award, how many do we think would be left at the end of the vesting period let's say 90 so you would apply that percentage so 90 percent of the 100 people to the number of awards and that would give you a charge across okay and then if you got to the end of the year and you said actually based on the people that have left only 80 percent you'd re-estimate true up okay um but your fair value stays the same it's the number that you expect both for the service condition and for the performance condition that you expect to uh, how many were in the outcome? So the what's end. the difference between then with the market performance condition? So market condition was deemed not so difficult to calculate at the time that IFRS 2 was set up or was, was issued. And what the conclusion was that you would actually include that market condition into your fair value at the grant date. And once you had done that, there is no update. What it's saying is, and it's called the Modified Grant Date Approach in IFRS 2, but basically it's saying the entity and the recipient have agreed at the grant date what they're going to provide and receive. You should be able to predict that, and it is that that you charge. So if you've got a market condition, you would include that in the fair value on day one. If you've got a market condition and a service condition, you would still estimate the number of people who are going to get it, but you wouldn't adjust if the market condition doesn't do what you're expecting at grant date. Okay, so there is a slight difference there between those three. Mm-hmm. The other thing I've heard about is non-vesting conditions. Mm. What's that? No, they're, they're, so they, they <laughs> Katie's came face dropped. Yeah. Why did she ask me this? <laughs> no, I told you not to ask me this one. So non-vesting conditions came into the standard later on, and they're really dealing with situations where the recipient, the counterparty, doesn't really impact what's what's going on in the business. Now, you might say they wouldn't impact EPS. But if I can give you an example, that might help. So, for example, the, the best one is for a non-vesting condition would be, uh, certainly in the UK, as a save-as-you-earn scheme. So an employee is allowed or required to save so much of their salary each month to then get the benefit of a share-based payment at the end. So they get a, a reduction in the market price at the end of the vesting period. But... The employee can decide 
not to save and they get all their money back. So it's it's a non-vesting condition. It, it's not going to cause it to vest. It's just part of the criteria. And that condition is then also included in the fair value at grant date and doesn't change. Okay. All so right? it's so more it's, similar to a market performance condition. Correct. Okay. Correct, yeah. And then just, you know, really to upset you, the other term I've heard you use is a post-vesting restriction. What's that? (laughs) So post-vesting is kind of what it says. So post-vesting means after it has vested. So after an award is unconditionally provided to the recipient, there are certain criteria around that particular award. Probably, again, the most common example is where counterparty would receive award but are told, if you go and work for a competitor in the next two years, you won't get that award anymore. And so it's a very difficult thing to manage, getting that award back Mm. and determining. So the the expectation of the employee doing that, the counterparty doing that, uh, is again included in the fair value at grant date. That's hard to estimate. Yeah, and so that's why I don't do valuations. (laughs) (laughs) Just tell them they need to do it. Exactly, exactly. But what it's trying to say is that we can't control post-vesting what will happen, but actually part of the value that we're we're showing the accounts, which is what we're talking about really, is the impact of that post-vesting restriction. Okay, so it's vested, they've got the award, Mm. but if they do something, they might have to give it back as in in my basic head okay perfect so I think that gives us a great uh, idea of lots of the you know the the concepts behind vesting the other thing we're going to cover in today's episode is measurement any sort of highlights you want to before we get into the detail so a lot of people I talk to say well I have to use Blackshaw's model to to calculate the fair value of the award or Monte Carlo sounds more Monte Carlo yeah but (laughs) Monte Carlo is not referred to in the standard whereas Blackshaw's method is But it sounds as if I know what I'm talking about. I don't. I'm not a valuation expert. And actually, the standard says that Scholl's model or something similar, it does not prescribe the way in which fair value should be calculated. And I think that's important because, actually, you you talked about Monte Carlo, there's binomial, there's Black Scholl's. Each one of them should come up with the same answer based on the inputs that you're putting in. So the standard does not prescribe the particular model you should use. And that's something I think is interesting because I work in the world of fair value IFRS 13 oh, and this, you know, IFRS 2 says you book your uh, share-based payment at fair value at grant date, but yeah. it's not the same fair value, is it? No, it's going <laughs> out of IFRS 13. Actually, I have to say IFRS 2 came first. Oh, so okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but um, absolutely. So IFRS 2 fair value is different and it's, it's noted in IFRS 13 it's interesting though isn't it because when they wrote 13 the whole point was to sort of work out all the standards where uh, they used fair value and bring it all together but they just ignore Jeremy's paper's too hard we'll leave that by itself it's got its own rules absolutely (laughs) so um, getting a little bit more into the detail now what are the inputs into your your fair value (laughs) the IFRS and fair value (laughs) Uh, the inputs uh, there are six of them that the the standard covers when you are valuing an option and I think again that's important so um, I'll try and remember them all but what you have got to include is the exercise price of the option, so the amount the recipient will pay, the life of the option, and I think that's important to think about, is that the vesting period or is that the actual life of the option? And it is the expected life, not just when it vests, so how long it will take someone to exercise. The market price of the shares, the expected volatility. So if you think about it, you're providing someone something at, at T0 at the beginning, there might be three years, five years, 
that's got to be included into the expected value of, of the award. Dividends, so dividend yield obviously would be included, and also the risk-free interest rate. Um, so those are the six inputs that the standard in Appendix B says that should be included in the option price. Obviously, then, if you're looking at something like an, a, a free share, there's no exercise price. But those, I, I still believe those criteria should be considered to determine what the fair value of, of a free share is compared with an option. Okay, so those ones are inputs into effectively into an option pricing model. Yeah. But even if you're getting shares, you would need to consider them. That's right. Okay, That's exactly right. and anything you would like specific hints and tips, like you said, we're not we're not valuers, but any hints and tips you'd give on those inputs or things people should watch out for. Well, I'm sure we'll touch on disclosure at the end. Yeah. But what I've seen an awful lot of the time is so for volatility. If you're looking at a three year chances are you'll look at three years of volatility before unless there's a, a, an indication that something different has happened. The other thing is I think when you're looking at a listed, the right to a listed share or an option over a listed share and that's relatively easy. You've got all that information. Yeah, you've got the market price. Exactly and you've got all the information and you've clearly got volatility as well because you can go and look at what's happening to the market price. It becomes incre- very much more difficult when you've got an unlisted share and I have had a number of conversations where people say, well, I, I don't have a market price. I, I, you know, it's, it's not in my information. And what do you do? I would generally say, if the business was going to be sold, would you be able to work at market price? Uh, and the answer is more often than not, yes. And so you, you've got to be sensible about how to work that out. And I've seen a lot of this in uh, small companies that are thinking of IPOing because obviously they've got their unlisted shares and they've got often share option schemes. What's the big boo-boo here? Oh, well, the, the big one is that when you might have an external valuer working on the valuation and they will look at the, the price today and they will actually include something called a discount for lack of marketability. So they're saying if this is an unlisted share, then we need to reduce the value because there's, there's not so much of a market. Now, in your scenario, if you've got an IPO or actually if you've got a trade sale, that won't have the lack of market because obviously you're going out to market, you're selling. So I will always question if, one, there is a discount for lack of marketability and, two, whether it should be included. And I would say 99% of the time it should not be included because of what the recipient is actually going to get is a listed share or an open market share. Yeah, so you'd have to have it that the recipient could walk away from the company taking their unlisted share with them. I suppose, you know, we would say it's fairly rare. Well, I I mean, how many unlisted companies would want uh, an employee to walk away with a share which then might benefit in an IPO or a trade sale at a future date? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, perfect. So um, great bit there about some of the measurement things we need to look out for as well. So I think we've pretty much covered the entire IFRS 2, other than you mentioned it earlier, so I'm going to pick up on it, is disclosure. Mm. There's a lot of disclosure. There is. The the standard covers a a lot of areas, and perhaps if you pick up a set of listed financial statements, quite often the shareholders' pages go on and on and on. I actually can be quite ruthless when I'm looking at those disclosures, because you you need to think about what the reader of the accounts needs to know. And often you can, if there are lots of share-based payment awards, you can actually bring them together if they're similar to reduce the volume of disclosure and perhaps make it more helpful to the reader. It is worth noting that, um, can I be really specky and boring and say paragraph 50? I love a paragraph, yeah. It's a catch-all paragraph. So it actually says, if you've got to think about what the reader wants and what they will need. So there's a catch-all of what else you should be. 
Um, and if anyone's if anyone's disclosure is alarmed, then I will certainly look at that paragraph mm-hmm. uh, to cover everything. I normally find the opposite. They're not like they're like pages and pages and pages. I'm not sure this I user wants or needs that. Maybe I'm the wrong person. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, well, I think that brings us to the end of our second part. So thank you very much for joining us today, Katie. That was great. We managed to get through it without laughing too much. Yeah, really. you know, on take 25, that was a real bonus. <laughs> um, so thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, I'm your host, Ruth Pretty. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers, LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.